You're listening to the Grace City Boston podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at gracecityboston.com or follow us on social media at Grace City Boston. Now, let's get to the sermon. Benediction from Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. He says, May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you at all times and in every way. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning longing, tired, hopeful. We proclaim you are peace. Fill this space, Holy Spirit, that we may experience you today. Give rest even now to the weary. Give attention to the sleepy. Give ears to hear goodness to the jaded. Give us each your very presence, your peace. Amen. Good morning to you, Grace City. My name is Emma Dickinson. I have the blessing of being just like you, a member here at Grace City. My husband, Billy, and I have been attending Grace City for the last couple of years. We're a part of a house church of other married folks. We had a wonderful Christmas party together last night. It's just a joy to be a part of the community that you have built. So thank you for building a community that I also get to be a part of. Like Brian said, we are in the season of Advent. We're in the second week of Advent. In the Christian tradition, we have hope, which Brian preached on last week. We have peace, which is what we'll settle on today. And then there's joy and love. And when Brian had invited me to speak for Advent, the original ask was to speak on joy, which is what we're going to dig into next week. And joy and I are good friends. We go way back. When I think of Christmas, joy is right there, thick as thieves, Um, joy on every page of my testimony and the story that God's written for me. But peace is sort of a different story. Peace and I do not go way back. We're more like distant cousins. Um, I'm not as familiar with peace, to be honest with you. And I want you to know that I did not choose peace, but peace chose me. The Lord works in mysterious ways. I know that you know that. Um, I needed to switch with David so that I could be present for family next weekend. And I think it goes like this from time and time again. We have plans for our lives. We have things that we believe we know about, and then God reorients us to learn something new. And so that's where I am this morning, with you, learning something new about peace. The thing that I know for sure about peace is what Paul writes in Philippians, that it surpasses our understanding. And I want to invite us this morning to consider the Prince of Peace, and I will go first. I will go first in considering the Prince of Peace. As we round the corner of 2023, we only have a couple weeks left to go. Pretty crazy. When I look back on the year that I've had so far, with certainty I can say that I longed for peace. Underneath many of my prayers, specifically for my marriage, my family, my job, was peace. Underneath my anger for injustices taking place around the world, there was a longing for peace. Heck, underneath most of the things that I asked for for Christmas, Santa, is peace. Um, I would gather that most of us are looking out these windows, looking at our phone, looking in the mirror, and having a sense that we long for peace as well. Where is the peace promised and hoped for? I want to start by setting the table, stacking hands on what peace really is. Our cultural understanding of peace, from my observation, is that it has a lot to do with circumstances. We believe peace is something our circumstances allow for. And the holidays expose this without fail. If you had a peaceful Thanksgiving, I'd love to talk to you after this and hear more about how that happened to you. Um, I really think we think, I think, that peace has a lot to do with our circumstances. We subconsciously or consciously make statements like, peace is possible if, dot, dot, dot. If my family can manage to make it 24 hours without a huge blow-up fight, 
Um, I come from a family of very loud Italians. Billy, after a week with my family on vacation, said, you guys are all alphas. How, do we, how are we going to make this happen? You're all alphas. It's just a lot of talking over one another at all times. Peace is possible if the conflict I'm experiencing at work would just subside, if my boss would understand me in this way, if my roommates would do dishes, if my neighbors would stop throwing parties at 2 a.m. on Tuesdays, if I could get to the bottom of a never-ending to-do list, if I could just get the right dose of anxiety medication, if I could just get this sweet baby to fall asleep already, if I could just have control over my schedule, if I could find my way out of this debt, if, 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 if. Peace by our American standards is a privilege, and by this understanding would be better defined as comfort. Peace defined by Jesus different than I think how we culturally are understanding it. Comfort instead is often a privilege. How do I know that comfort is a privilege? Unequal access to health care, the rise of rent costs in Boston, as of this morning, the average cost of an apartment to rent in our city is over $3,000. Access to healthy, affordable foods in certain neighborhoods. Let's even look locally. The Boston Healthcare for Homeless program exists to ensure equitable and dignified healthcare for individuals experiencing homelessness, and they report seeing over 10,000 individuals a year across 30 sites in our city. And that's the population of people willing to get medical services. So over 10,000 people in our city experiencing homelessness and instability. Veterans, professors, folks struggling with addiction, folks who have been abandoned by their families, teen moms. Comfort is a privilege. But is comfort peace? If Jesus is the Prince of Peace, it has to be true for the poor and for the privileged. It has to be true all the time. So when there is no comfort, can there be peace? When there is no comfort in the extremes of homelessness, in the tenderness of family fights, in trauma, in the war across the world, in the addiction epidemic, amidst mental health lows, breakups, and divorce, can there be peace? If there is no comfort, can there still be peace? Peace in our world and defined by humans is a pact to end hostilities between two parties who are at war, but what if peace is more than that? Our dictionaries say that peace is the absence of conflict, but I think when we open our Bible today, we're going to see that peace is not just the absence of conflict, it's the replacement of conflict with something better. Something better. In scripture, we see the word peace translated as shalom, which is a very common Jewish greeting. As an adjective, it means wholeness or complete, but as a verb, it means to restore. So, peace is not the elimination of chaos, but the restoration of all things. Peace is not the elimination of chaos, but the restoration of all things. God does see brokenness. And in the name of justice, he does more than just take it away. He restores. He takes broken things and makes them beautiful in the name of love. He is in the business of making all things right. We're going to start today by opening up to scripture in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah, who's a prophet, is addressing the Israelites. He's talking to a people characterized by rebellion, addiction to false gods. Isaiah casts a vision for the rescue plan to come. Rescue from their sin and from their brokenness. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A remedy from God, a remedy that is God. Today we're going to ask the question, was Isaiah right? Is Jesus really the Prince of Peace with a long-awaited Messiah 
really be a man of peace. We're going to look to see if Jesus really is the Prince of Peace in three moments. The birth, the boat, and the promise. I'm not a believer of accidents or coincidences. I find that in the pages of my Bible there is rich intentionality and purpose. We know from John 3.16 that God sends Jesus in the name of love. It says that he loves this chaotic, complicated world. He sends his son so that the people he loves, you and I, may not perish but live with him forever. But the way that God sends Jesus, the way that he comes, is endlessly interesting to me and on purpose. We're going to look at Jesus' birth starting in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, if you'll open with me. It'll also be on the screen. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be, but the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. Here's what we know. An angel named Gabriel appears to an engaged woman who's a virgin. Historians believe Mary to have been incredibly young, likely 14 years old and poor. A woman in this day and age would not have had power or status. Um, this angel looks at our Mary, who is understandably already distressed by this shocking interaction with an angel being, and tells her that she will conceive and give birth to a son, and not just any son, but the Messiah, Jesus, Son of the Most High. And Mary responds immediately in two ways, with fear in trembling, but also with curiosity. She may not be royal, but she's not dumb. She asks, how? The angel's response transforms her. This is verse 35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. Some translations have verse 37 as, for nothing is impossible with God. Mary, in the hearing of this divine reality, leans all the way in. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Let it be to me according to your word. Even though we can't hear Mary's voice, we can't actually hear her tone, I have a sense when I sit with my Bible open that the tone here changes. It changes away from fear toward confidence, acceptance toward peace. Mary shows us that peace does not come from understanding all of the details about our complicated world and big God, but from knowing who you are and whose you are. Who you are and whose you are. And if you really want to live with peace, surrender your life to God's hands. Mary says, let it be to me according to your word. May your word to me be fulfilled. Here's what I don't hear her saying. I don't hear her receiving this grand invitation with passivity. She doesn't say, well, it just I guess it is what it is. I guess I'll have to do this. She's not passive. The other thing I don't hear her saying is, oh, sounds good. This is going to be great. <laughs> I don't hear any toxic positivity. 
I see a woman standing in reality. She knows who she is and who she is. I am the Lord's servant, and I'm going to do what you've asked of me. Her response is one of trust. She's at peace. But make no mistake, the mother of Jesus is in a complicated situation. She's engaged, not married, pregnant. She's a woman in a world without many rights, and she's not with her fiancé when this conversation happens. How will her fiancé, Joseph, respond? We're going to pick up in Matthew 1, 19 and ask the question, is peace about circumstance or is it really about restoration? Matthew 1.19, Joseph enters our story. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. The chaos is racking up. Add to the list of complications the contemplation of divorce, of leaving Mary. And we're not in a position to judge Joseph. He's finding that his circumstances are past his understanding as well. The math does not make sense. How could his fiance be pregnant even though they haven't slept together? It's a very complicated situation. Verse 20 says, though, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And just like the song we sang this morning, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. With great fear, and honestly realistic fear, for their reputation, what their community would think, what people would assume from their claims, Mary and Joseph believe what the angels have told them about Jesus, and they press forward. We're going to jump back to Luke chronologically, because it tells us next about her pregnancy. It says that while she was eight months pregnant, there was a decree across the Roman Empire about new taxes so that everybody had to go and get registered in the town of their family line. So they leave Nazareth and go to Joseph's hometown, which is Bethlehem. And what we know is that this journey would not have been easy. Again, Mary in her third trimester, about eight months pregnant, estimating that they walked or rode on a donkey 65 to 90 miles over the course of four to five days. And if you're keeping track, that's a lot of miles. <laughs> traveling, walking by donkey, eight months pregnant, 65 to 90 miles. At best, this is an exhausting journey. And this is what we know next, that Mary is very close to giving birth when they arrive, but there's no room at the inn. A better translation of inn would have been guest rooms um, or an extra place to stay, not necessarily a hotel. There was nothing left for them. I don't know about your experience with belonging, but I hope you take comfort in the fact that the Savior of the world was born into a place where there was no room left. No room left. Everyone is in the town for the census. Luke 2, 7 says that they end up in a stable, a place meant for animals, because there's no room for them, and their circumstances sort of get worse from there. It says that Mary gives birth amongst the animals, noisy and stinky and all, and lays her newborn baby in a manger, and a manger is not a cute basket. It's a feeding trough for animals. It feels important to pause and say with love that the song, Silent Night, is not biblically accurate. <laughs> this was not a silent night. This was a real baby who really cried. These are real animals who were very regularly noisy. This was an ordinary birth by all accounts. 
Jesus did not come out of the womb just happy to be there. He was a regular baby gasping for his first breaths of air. It would have been loud and chaotic. A mess. Prince of peace, ruler of governments. The Jewish people expected him to be born to royalty, to a royal married couple, but they got a poor young virgin girl unwed. They expected him to be born in a palace, but instead he's laid in a feeding trough. They hoped he'd be acclaimed by other princes, but instead his first visitors are lowly shepherds. Not long after Jesus is born, Herod, the king of the day, hears of his birth, hears wise men declare that the Son of God is here. And with fury and envy, he sends a decree to kill all of the young boys under two years old, which would have included Jesus, and they flee for their safety. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus flee. Refugees. True refugees. It seems that peace has nothing to do with our circumstances. If we're curious at all about how God chose to send Jesus, because we know it could have been any which way, we see that peace has nothing to do with our circumstances. Jesus' birth was surrounded by conflict, but we know that he himself would be the agent of redemption for our world. Jesus being born into ordinary chaos is the perfect picture to show us that he is peace himself. Prince of peace, God with us. Not on a throne, but in a manger. Not far away, but right with us breathing our air, walking our streets. Peace, therefore, is not something or somewhere, but someone. Peace is not something or somewhere, it is someone. Our second moment, the boat. Jesus grows up, he's fully human and fully God. At this moment, he's in his early 30s. His ministry to bring restoration and love to our world to save his beloved from their sins is in full swing. After a day of preaching, our Prince of Peace looks at his friends, his inner circle, the disciples, and he gives them their next direction. They're sitting by a lake, and he says, let's get in this boat and cross to the other side. We're going to be in Mark 4, starting in verse 36. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, and the disciples woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care? So many of us struggle with peace and can deeply relate to this cry. If I could summarize all of the prayers I prayed in 2023, many of them would come down to Jesus. Do you care? Do you care about me? Do you care about Palestinians and Jews, about depression, about food insecurity, about my dad, about my home? Underneath our pleas for peace, our heart is really asking, Jesus, do you care about me? Do you care about this? Is this really a world that you love? Is there any way for you to just make this okay? I imagine the ship beginning to sink, overwhelmed by the waves, the fear and the glances between the disciples. There's no way out. It's not that they're about to drown. It's that they are drowning. They run, they sprint down to Jesus, who's asleep, unbothered, unfazed, and they yell, don't you care if we drown? And he gets up, in verse 39, it says, he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the waves, peace, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. They witnessed a miracle. He looked at chaos and destruction and brokenness and said, no. He said, peace, be still said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? The opposite of peace is not conflict. The opposite of peace is fear. 
We saw it with Mary, and we can see it now. Why are you so scared when I, the Prince of Peace, I'm here? The road we walk between fear and peace is one of wild faith. And if you're anything like me, doesn't it sometimes feel like your faith can come and go? Like sometimes it's a choice we make to believe in the Prince of Peace. The road between fear and peace is one of wild faith. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This was more than a rescue, it was a revival. What they witnessed was the way that Jesus would use his power, not for status or reward, but for peace. We have a God who uses power for peace. We can trust and believe that Jesus is peace because he is powerful enough to be so. Winds and waves cease by the sound of his voice. He's powerful not for status, but for your peace. And earlier when I said that peace is not about circumstances, I want to make a nuanced point now. Though peace is not about your circumstances, Jesus deeply cares about your circumstances. The things that are going on in your life, the details of your day, of your relationships, of your well-being, are greatly important to him. He does not let them drown. This is not just a teaching moment. He is their rescue. He cares for their safety and their well-being. Jesus is not just the peace that we want, but the peace that we deeply need. Our third moment, the promise. The birth, the boat, and the promise. Jesus, toward the end of his ministry, is leaving behind integral truths that he wants the disciples to know for themselves and carry out into the world. Ultimately, he's telling them, I'm going to leave you soon, but don't worry. I'm going to leave behind my spirit, the Holy Spirit, who will dwell with you forever, a presence of peace. In John 16, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. And in this world, here's the promise, you will have trouble. You will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The truth about me and the world, he says, these things I've told you so that you could have peace, but the promise really is that in this world you're going to have trouble. There is no escaping discomfort and trouble in this world. And I know that you know that. You don't need somebody to stand up here and tell you that trouble is promised. He says, take heart or gain courage because I've overcome the world. And maybe a different way to phrase that would be, I have conquered the chaos. You can have confidence because I've conquered the chaos. I'm making all things right and new and good again. Thomas Watson says, if God be our God, he will give us peace in trouble. When there is a storm without, he will make peace within. The world can create trouble in peace, but God can create peace in trouble. In this moment, we see with clarity, life is hard. It's incredibly hard. It's unfair. It's messy. It's confusing. You will be let down. You will be overwhelmed, but have courage, have confidence. Psalm 139 says, the darkness was not too dark for him. The brokenness not too broken. The noise not too loud. The Prince of Peace was born into chaos lived amongst the brokenness and went to the cross so that your sin would not overcome you. And the power of our fears were defeated that night on the cross. The restoration brought to light in his resurrection. And what do I mean by that? It could have happened any which way, but God took on flesh to bring us peace himself. Philippians 2 says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus calms 
all kinds of storms. He drives out fear with the truth of who he is. He disrupts the world's greatest enemy of peace, death. The one thing that comes for us all. I wish that wasn't true. But not a person in this world can escape death. He goes to the cross for our sin and raises three days later for our life so that in Jesus' name, death would not have the final say. Peace would reign instead. We don't just have to rest in peace when we can live in peace by the power of the Spirit who is alive. And in closing, I want to remind you this. Peace is not out there. It's not something to be bought or found. Peace is in here. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Your access to peace is endless. If you want to know peace, know the God of peace. Philippians 4, starting in verse 4, goes like this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then, here's another promise, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A person after peace is going to be a person of prayer. If you want to have peace, sit with the God of peace. The mystery of prayer is that it's so much more about what God wants to do in you, the peace he's offering you, than whatever request you're making to him to change the world around you. Our last piece of good news comes in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. The good news is this. What Jesus did on the cross, the justification of our sins, means we live at peace with God himself now and forevermore. This is our reality. Jesus took our place on the cross so that you and I could live in peace, at peace with the God of the universe. Then it says, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So my charge to you is to go. Go and be at peace with God. Go and give peace away to the stranger, estranged neighbor and friend. Find the peace you long for in the person of Jesus. Remember who you are and whose you are. And remember that God uses his power for good, for peace. That is his heart for you. I want to close with just a moment of reflection. If you'll put both of your feet on the ground for me and just sort of rock them back and forth to find your footing. I want us to just share a moment in reality and find peace in our real world. Sometimes church maybe feels like a bubble where we walk away from hard things and we enter this place, but for a moment, bring the hard things to the table. Feet on the ground, maybe hands on your lap, palms can face up, they can face down, whatever you're comfortable with. Close your eyes, lower your head, unclench your shoulders, your jaw, and sit with the God of peace. Pray with me.